Well, I guess it's only appropriate to start this first podcast of 2024 uh, with a big uh, Happy New Year. I I hope you had a wonderful holiday season, and I hope that we're going to have just an amazing year uh, for uh, all of us. So, with that, I've got a bunch of interesting topics I want to cover. I want to talk about the returns of our portfolios last year. Uh, I want to talk about some comparisons of, uh, uh, of the best-in-class versus uh, Vanguard. Uh, I want to talk about uh, an important prediction that I'm making for 2024. I want to talk about what I consider to be the number one family of funds in, in, in America. And, uh, uh, be, but before I do any of this, I want to tell you what happened at 3.30 this morning when I got up and I was going to record this podcast. I opened up my computer and right at the top of my emails was an email from Rational Reminder. Now, if you don't know the, 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 the firm Rational Reminder or the podcast, rational reminder. I, I I hope you will take a look. We've got a link to this particular uh, a video uh, of uh, Ben Felix and Cameron Passmore, and uh, they are focusing. By the way, they do some wonderful interviews of academics and all sorts of uh, uh, famous people from our from our industry. Uh, and of course, Ben Felix is one of our truth tellers. I think he's one of the best teachers uh, in the industry. But what they've done, and it's over two and a half hours long. You can listen to a little bit. You can listen to a lot. I listened to the whole thing. Thought it was terrific. They are giving you little snippets out of out of of, of many of the highlights of the year, uh, having to do with the folks they've interviewed whether it's about asset allocation, about trust, about regrets, the psychology of, of uh, how to, to be a better investor, how to teach our kids, uh, all sorts of topics that virtually everyone I thought was, was interesting. And they weren't long pieces, they were short pieces and always a, a quick and important lesson. So I hope you'll, in fact, there'll be uh, in the note field uh, for this uh, uh, for this podcast, you'll have a link uh, to that uh, presentation, and I heartily recommend it. But then back to what I came to talk about today. I decided that I should take this opportunity to review the returns of 2023. Now, you all know how I love a bunch of numbers and and that I can bore you for hours with numbers. I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to bore you for a short period of time. I'm not going to go through every number, but I want to give you uh, uh, from closer than 30,000 feet. But I want to take a look at our portfolios. How did we do? How did the best in class do compared to Vanguard? How did the best in class do compared to the average in all of those different uh, uh, asset classes? So I've got all of that I want to go through. And so let's start with a quick review of uh, uh, Chris Pedersen's recommended best-in-class recommendations. And these are uh, all 10 of the equity asset classes uh, that we've we've been talking about in the ultimate buy-and-hold portfolio since uh, since 1990, 
five when we first started doing this study. But if you look at the 10 equity asset classes, large, small, value, growth, U.S. international, emerging markets, the average return of all of those equity asset classes was 16.4% in the best in class. And what is interesting, and we can only do this with, uh, with, with nine uh, of, the, uh, of the Vanguard funds, because Vanguard doesn't have a small cap international value. But when we look at the nine different uh, funds they have, uh, what we see is the average return, again, this is for Vanguard's nine funds, 15.6%. Uh, their low was for their, uh, uh, their, their emerging market fund of 93 their high return was for the S&P 500 at 26.3, but when you average all of them, it's 15.6. For those same asset classes, using the ones that, uh, that, that Chris recommended, uh, from a low of uh, 8% uh, in a large cap value uh, to a high of 22.8%, for the small cap value, U.S. small cap value, uh, the average was 16.4. So there was an eight-tenths of 1% better return for the funds that uh, Chris recommended. And, I, and by the way, I think that that's a meaningful difference. If you looked at the average in all of those uh, nine equity asset classes uh, across all funds, it was 15.7%. So it turned out that these, uh, the funds at Vanguard uh, slightly underperformed the average in all of those different equity asset classes. So kudos to Chris, at least for this year. And I think it's uh, interesting to note in the combinations uh, how the portfolios did. We won't, I won't go through every one of them, but uh, the uh, four-fund uh, worldwide portfolio was up 19.3%. Uh, the four-fund U.S. portfolio was up 17.2%. The worldwide all-value was up 18 uh, The worldwide small-cap was up uh, a small-cap value. Uh, was up 20, and the uh, 10 fund ultimate buy and hold portfolio uh, was up 16.3. By the way, uh, the bond portfolio was up about 4.4%. Uh, and the one I was most interested in finding out, because uh, a little over a year ago, we set up a, an account for our granddaughter, a split between uh, a couple of Avantis funds, uh, partly in the large cap blend, half in large cap blend and half in small cap value. And that portfolio this year was up 22.3. And by the way, they, the, the, the reason that this is, uh, is good is because 
The whole, the hope is, is that this two-fund strategy will sit there cranking away, doing whatever it's going to do, uh, starting with 50-50 uh, uh, between these large-cap land and small-cap value, no rebalancing, but, uh, but what will hopefully uh, be obvious uh, at the end of the first 18 years when uh, she's likely, my grand, our granddaughter's likely to actually see these, uh, these results. First of all, I'm hoping the compound rate of return was better than 12%. That's the first thing I'm hoping for so that what she sees gives her hope that 12% is not an impossibility over her lifetime. Secondly, that there'll be years that small cap value is, is better and years that the S&P 500 is better. Uh, uh, again, uh, uh, giving a sense of the reason uh, for the uh, two different funds instead of putting all of the money in uh, small cap value. And by the way, I might also mention, as long as I'm talking about small cap value, it is interesting. It is interesting that the Avantis small cap value did so much better uh, than the Vanguard. Now, Vanguard has really uh, three different small cap value funds, up 14.8, up 16, and up 14.7 versus the gain of 21.8, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 22.8 uh, for the Avantis. Now, why the difference? I think the big reason is because of the quality orientation that Avantis uses in their work. And we can see that if we look at the Vanguard factor funds. They have funds that follow the factors of, of value, of quality, of momentum, and of volatility. And it's interesting to note that the quality portfolio was by far the, uh, the, the biggest uh, extra return. It far outproduced the other factors. And so uh, that is a factor that is an important part of the Avantis approach to uh, investing. I might also add, because I've said so many times, that the return of the total market index and the S&P 500 are, are going to be very close. This uh, last year, the total market index was up 26.5, the S&P 500 up 26.1. If we look at 15 years, the total market index compounded at 14.17 and the S&P 500 at 14.23. I only mention this because there are a lot of people that think that uh, uh, total market index is way better than the S&P 500 and it, it just isn't so. And the reason being is both of the S&P 500 and the total market index are driven by a relatively small number of companies uh, within those indexes. In both cases, about a third of the portfolio is represented by a total of about seven companies. And I think it's also uh, worth uh, taking a look at the, uh, uh, the return on the 
the Vanguard S&P 500 and the Dimensional Funds Small Cap Value Fund, they, they both have track records uh, uh, since uh, March 31, 1993. And uh, it is interesting to note because you read a lot about how small cap value underperforms uh, the large cap blend. Well, the, the reality is is that $10,000 invested back on March 31, 1993, the dimensional uh, small cap value is now worth uh, no taxes taken out, uh, no, no extra fees taken out, but $272,000. $259 versus $185,517 in the S&P 500. Uh, and as I've mentioned before, if you haven't heard this before, that there were two or three times over that long period of time that the small cap value got way ahead and then came back to be about the same as the S&P. And then now it is in that uh, uh, far ahead category, but... Uh, it won't shock me if at some point in the future they come back and be close together again. And I think another uh, interesting comparison during the year, uh, we had a lot of people ask uh, about owning the Avantis uh, all equities market. This is a portfolio that's U.S. international, large and small and uh, value and growth and and uh, REITs, uh, in some cases very small percentages, other cases very l large percentages of, of asset classes, but just for what it's worth, uh, this last year uh, that fund was up 19.1% for the year, a, a great year. Uh, and if we looked at, for example, our four-fund worldwide strategy, uh, it was up 19.3. So it was about the same. The two-fund strategy, as I mentioned earlier, up 22.3, and the four-fund U.S. up 17.2. I still believe uh, that uh, the uh, four-fund strategy that's going to have likely more in small cap value than you're going to get in the Avantis fund should give it uh, should give it an advantage, and and to be fair, I'm not sure that what we see as the portfolio for the Avantis uh, all equities market is going to look like it does today. For example, it has one percent in international small cap, and it has. Uh, one percent in mid cap value and one percent in in mid cap blend. Uh, I'm I'm not guessing th those on the long term are going to uh, to 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 be the uh, the exposure they'll have. I have a hunch that the portfolio will change over time, but I do think that the way we have built the portfolios with more small cap value along with the large cap blend. That that uh, and large cap value, uh, that you'll do better with our combination. But uh, so far, they're not that not that far apart. And I guess I should uh, before I leave the performance of the last year, uh, allow me to uh, 
go back to uh, September 30th, 2019. That's when Avantis introduced the small cap value fund. And since then, through the end of December, that fund is up 79.2%. Uh, the three Vanguard small cap value funds are up 36.5%, 39.7%, and 30.6%. So uh, Avantis, and again, I think it's that orientation to quality has a, has a huge lead uh, since they came to the market. Now I want to change the topic in a big way. First of all, I want to talk about the concept of buy and hold versus market timing. And um, buy and hold uh, is exactly what it says. Real buy and hold means you, you put money, a certain percentage in equities, index funds typically for the uh, equity portion, and the other part in bonds, and that is to reflect your risk tolerance and hopefully your need for return, and you stay the course. The only reason you would change uh, as a buy-in holder would be as you age, your glide path may call for more fixed income. But there is no reason to change the equity uh, because the minute you start changing the equity, you are uh, participating in the age-old uh, strategy of market timing. Now, most people who do that don't think of it as market timing, per se. They just think of it as the, the smart thing to do to adjust to some concern they might have with what the market's about to do. So when I see the headline... U.S. economist predicts 2024 will bring, quote, biggest crash of our lifetime, end quote. I'm thinking somebody's going to read that and as a buy-in holder going to decide it's time to become a market timer and do something to protect against the biggest crash of our lifetime. Uh, this is uh, coming uh, from Harry Dent. Uh, Harry Dent has periodically called for the end of the world, and, uh, and a couple of times uh, the market did actually go down, uh, but it wasn't because he called it, because uh, he called many bear markets that never happened. Uh, but he says since 2009, this has been 100% artificial, unprecedented money printing and deficits 27 trillion in deficits over 15 years to be exact. This is off the charts, 100% artificial, which means we're in a dangerous state, Harry Dent told Fox News Digital. I think 2024 is going to be the biggest single crash year we'll see in our lifetime. Now this report goes on and on why Harry Dent thinks that the uh, end of the world in terms of the, of the market is right around the corner. Biggest crash ever. Look, or maybe our lifetime, maybe, maybe not ever, but our lifetime. And, and that's when you do then respond to that, that is a market timing move. 
It's no different than if somebody says, get out of the bond market and, and, and go into money market funds. That's a market timing move. And we know that most people say that market timing costs you, it doesn't help you. But there are lots of people predicting good things and bad things. We have uh, people who are concerned about the political uh, cycle. There are people who are concerned about inflation uh, heating up again. Other people are concerned about the the recession that was supposed to have happened some time ago, and they're still waiting for it to happen. These are all reasons for people to figure they should be on one side of the market or the other. Now, I am going to make a prediction. My, my historic prediction has been that small cap will be large, that value will be growth, that stocks will be bonds, uh, and uh, not only for the next year, but the next 10 years. Now, uh, it, it's more likely over 10 or 20 years, but one year at a time, there's a lot of randomness uh, uh, to the outcome of big versus small and value versus, uh, versus growth. As a matter of fact, uh, it, it, it turns out looking at small cap value in the S&P 500 uh, it wasn't too far from a 50-50, a slight advantage in number of, of good years to uh, better years to small cap value, but not a big advantage. So my, my prediction is uh, hiding behind long-term returns, not making an actual prediction about the next 12 months, but I think it is time I step up and make a prediction about the next 12 months. This started when I came across a study that Ben Carlson recently did showing that uh, since 1928, there have been 34 times that the market was up over 20%, just as it was last year, which uh, makes number 35. And looking back, what he found was that in 12 of those years following the over 20% re return, they had losses, and the average loss was 9.1%. In the other 22 years that were, that were profitable, uh, the average gain was almost 20%, but it was 18.8%. And I thought, well... You know, that says there's probably a pretty good probability based on history at least. First of all, the market is up more than it is down. But on top of that, uh, there has been this, maybe it's momentum that happens. And so, they, and so the market uh, does better. So, so I said, wait a minute. Isn't there another important factor about this coming year? Not only, according to Ben Carlson's study, does it suggest that the market will probably do well, but there's another factor that he has not taken into consideration. This is an election year. And the third and fourth years of the presidential cycle tend to be very profitable years. As a matter of fact, uh, in the election year, the market typically 
uh, earns around 10%. So I looked at all those years, the market was up 20%. And then looked at the returns the following year when it was a presidential election. And I looked both at the S&P 500 and I looked at small cap value. And what I noticed was there was only, with the S&P 500, one losing year of only 9%. All the other years following a gain of 20% and being a the, the year of an election, uh, the average return was around 14%. So one loss, and by the way, to put that 9% loss in perspective, that was 2,000. And for the previous five years, the S&P 500 was up 37, 23, 33, 28, and 21. I rounded there. Huge years. So that minus nine was uh, a small loss from what it could have been after you know all of those great years. So that tells me that that if you're up over twenty percent the year before and you're going into an election for everything I know about the past, it looks like a pretty good time to be in the market now. Here comes my prediction. And I made the prediction before I actually looked at the numbers. Now, I, I happen to know that historically, the small cap value makes about, uh, this is going back to 1970, makes over 14% more per year in a year uh, that it is up. And, uh, and better than the S&P. And so I thought, well, why shouldn't the small cap value be up 14% more than is expected of the S&P 500 for next year? And so I said, I'm going to guess that uh, the small cap value next year is going to be up uh, about 28%. Now, that's my prediction. And I, it, it, it looks like it would be an average return if the S&P 500 is up 14%. And I know this is the kind of craziness that goes into the thinking about what the market should do. But I'm going to put down my marker on 28% for small cap value next this year, 24, and 14% on the S&P 500. And if the future is like the past, the least we should expect would be that in both cases they will be a profit. Of course, I have tongue-in-cheek as I say all of this because we know how unpredictable the market can be, but we also know how human it is to try to find patterns when patterns don't actually exist. It is one of the biggest hurdles we have. And I also, in terms of hurdles, want to talk about one of the topics that was on the 
rational reminder uh, uh, video, and that is the importance of trust. And I thought a lot about that after I listened, uh, and uh, and and I was thinking about the work that Avantis is doing. And I went back and looked at the what uh, my the other firm that I've I've always held in high esteem is Dimensional Funds for the work they've done in fine-tuning the process of building what we would call basically either passively managed or indexed type of funds. And I, I really have come to a conclusion that while DFA will continue to be a, a great fund family, uh, my sense is that if I had to put my trust in, in one fund family for the future, um, and and that's a big decision because so many things can change. But I really think what Avantis is doing is uh, is special. And while we don't recommend every one of their funds in every asset class, it will not surprise me if five years from now they will have all earned a right to either be the fund or a uh, alternate fund in that asset class. I want to close this uh, podcast with a part of a letter that my wife and I re- re- received from the President Randhawa uh, Sabah Randhawa at Western Washington University. Uh, in the letter, the purpose of the letter was to thank uh, Zan and myself for for our our contribution uh, to the uh, financial literacy program at Western. But in his letter, I I think he says something that is really important. He mentions the responsibility we have as university faculty and administrators is to ensure that those who choose to pursue a degree have access to a wide range of educational opportunities. In many ways, that is the beauty of an education rooted in the liberal arts. Students can choose from an array of subjects and disciplines that expose them to a variety of ideas and experiences that broaden their worldview and help them become well-rounded, educated citizens. But there are certain fundamental skills and knowledge that should be available to all. Financial literacy is one of those. Too many young people, and frankly, even many adults, lack the basic understanding needed to make sound decisions when it comes to money. It's not a skill they learned in high school. Perhaps their families have struggled with household budgeting, and sometimes talking about money is simply uncomfortable. But this is about to change at Western with the establishment of the Merriman Financial Literacy Program. The new program will not only educate our students in this important dimension of their personal and professional lives, it will also help bring impact to scale by creating an outreach component for delivering financial literacy education to the public at large. And I am still committed, whether it's through Western or through our website, our videos, our articles, all the work that Chris and Daryl and Rich and Margie and Renee, those of us plus all of you 
who have been kind enough to refer folks to the, to the work that we are doing. And I am, I am serious about trying to help uh, investors find other sources like Ben Felix and the fine work that they are doing, like Jonathan Clements, uh, like Ben Carlson, like George Sisti, all people who are dedicated to finding the truth in what is best for you, not what is best for them, number one, and then best for you, number two, but no, best for you, number one. Thanks for listening.